Okay, so I just want to welcome everyone tonight for our third epistle of John. Um, your notes are in front of you. And as we begin this final letter, I think we are going to take just a few minutes and go back and review a little bit um, on the first and second letters. Because we do do expository teaching, because we do go line by line, we do get into so many details that sometimes by the end of a class, you start losing the big picture. So let's just get our minds back on the big picture of these three letters and how they all work together. So as we approach this third letter, um, a little background that we need to understand for all these letters, because um, we are going to see John has a reason, a purpose, and there is an urgency in his writing in all three of these letters. Because at the time of his writing, two things were going on that we really need to understand. The first, um, theologically, or a doctrinal issue, was the rise of, remember, we've heard it in several of the classes, the rise of Gnosticism. And not only the rise of Gnosticism in general, but the infiltration of it in the church. It was being accepted in the church. And then the second thing we need to understand to grasp the letters is culturally just the importance of hospitality in the first century. So these two things, this idea of Gnosticism and this need and requirement for hospitality became intertwined and interconnected necessitating these three letters from John. So in the first letter, if you remember, um, he was really dealing with a lot of the doctrinal things in the church. And man, he hit Gnosticism right off in the first couple of verses of John. And we'll be going through that again. But um, the second two letters he really takes on the cultural issues, which was hospitality. So in the second letters, um, John 2, the second letter, he's dealing with the warning that people have to be careful to not give hospitality to everyone. There are people, false teachers, that needed to be denied hospitality, denied access into people's home and into churches and to home churches. And that might sound harsh, but it was necessary for the protection of the church. The third letter we're going to see is the flip side of that where we need to be careful when people deserve hospitality to give it to them. Because some people were being let in that shouldn't be, and some people were being denied. So these are some of the things that we're going to be looking at. So let's just remind ourselves here, Gnosticism, if you remember, it begins with the idea of dualism. And dualism is simply the belief that there is a division between the spiritual world and the material world. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. 
Absolutely, that's true. We have a material world. We have a spiritual world. All dangerous lies begin with some aspect of truth. And we're going to see that's what happens here. So in Gnosticism, we learn that these two worlds are in opposition of each other. So Gnosticism takes the truth of this material and spiritual reality in a very wrong direction, and it actually leads to a false gospel. So in Gnostic thought, the material world is evil and only the spiritual world is good. Can anyone think of some early scriptures in Genesis that should have put the nails in the coffin of this idea from the very beginning? Yeah. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. God did not create an evil material world. He created a beautiful world, a wonderful world, a a remarkable, breathtaking world. And then the crown of his creation, humans, he said, oh, I'm putting you in charge to steward this beautiful world. The material world is not evil. The material world from the beginning was good. But even though that is in the very beginning of the word of God, this teaching that was derived from ancient teachings of Plato, early on it was taught, and again it um, grew and actually got some tendrils in the church. So, um, in order to really understand Gnosticism, you all, and it is hard because it's like trying to hold a slippery fish. It changes. There's a lot of different ideas that come from it. Um, Over the centuries, it has taken different directions. So tonight, all I really want you to see is a couple of things that were being taught in John's time when he was actually writing. So we know from other classes and from other books, from Paul, from Peter, from Jude, We know that false teachers from within the church itself were going to rise and lead people astray. We also learned false teachers um, are so dangerous that they will receive some of the harshest of judgments. Because remember, we, we should expect to hear lies from the world. The world lies all the time. But if you have the church, the very entity that claims to be the, um, the one who holds truth, if you are getting lies from there, it is very dangerous and it destroys people. So this is what John was dealing with in his writing. So... In Gnostic thought, um, we want to look at how is it so contrary to the true gospel. So we know in the true gospel, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. This fact 
is what allows Jesus to be the perfect propitiation for sin. He has to be both. That's what the gospel is. So in this little section, and I took this from Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, but he had to be fully man because only man could pay the price for a man. It was man that rebelled against God. It was man that deserves the wrath of God. So it was essential for the Savior to be human. And there's several verses there that this week you can dig into that all show the Bible's teaching of the humanity of Christ. And if you haven't been to a class with me before, um, in your notes, anything in red, those are connections, meaning whatever book we're in, this connects you to other books in the Bible, because that's what we need to be doing. We need to constantly be making connections, because the best interpreter of the word is what? The word. word. If you want to understand what John is saying, you're going to find some explanations in other books. So that's what your connections are. Um, Anything in blue, those are applications. And I have several applications in here, and that just means how do we take what we're learning from the Word and apply it in our life? So that's the reason for the different colors if this is um, new to you. So Jesus had to be fully man, and he also had to be fully God. Why? Because a mere human could neither fully bear nor satisfy God's wrath. The sacrifice had to be of such infinite, eternal value that it would satisfy the justice of God. So it was essential that Jesus be divine. So there's scriptures there. Dig into them this week that all show the biblical doctrine for Christ's divinity. So he had to be both fully God and fully man. If your doctrine does not hold to a savior that is fully God and fully man, you're believing a false doctrine. I I can't say that any more strongly. You don't have the true gospel if you don't have a savior fully God and fully man. Um, So what was happening... In John's time, oh, there we go. Is there were two divisions of Gnosticism, and each of these attacked a different part, a different truth of the true gospel. The first is called Serinthian Gnosticism, and this gets its name simply from the man who was teaching it. His name was Serinthian, and he was um, a contemporary of John's living in Ephesus, and he denied Christ's deity. He said that Jesus was the son of Joseph, but not the son of God. So that was his teaching at this time. Um, In this belief... Um, It was said that um, Jesus was not God in human flesh, but he became divine at baptism. The spirit entered Jesus at baptism and left him before crucifixion. 
So he was really only God during his ministry on the earth. That's it. He died on the cross. That would mean he died on the cross as what? A man. Not good enough. Not good enough to be the Savior. Um, The second form of Gnosticism is Docetic Gnosticism. This one was a little more prevalent. And in this, we have a denial of Christ's humanity. So this belief, and remember, it's because, well, all material things are evil. So surely the Savior couldn't be made of material matter that would make him evil. So they denied his humanity. And in this, they, um, this word, docetic, comes from the meaning to appear or to seem. So the whole idea is Jesus isn't really man. He just seems to be a man. He appears to be a man. He can walk, but he won't leave footsteps. You can walk up to him, but push through him. Yes, absolutely. Like a phantom. Um, Not truly man. And again, if he's not truly um, truly man, he could not be the sacrifice for humanity. So Shaney covered this so well the first night of John. But let's just read this first verse, the first few verses in 1 John, to remind us how John really attacked this idea at the beginning. This is 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. This is why John hit that. He was like, I was there. He he was there. He actually saw him, touched him, felt him, heard him, Everything. This is why, ladies, oh my gosh, those, those first apostles, this is what made them so important. First person access and relationship to Jesus himself. And John was one of those. So he's saying, this is a lie. What they're teaching is a lie. I've felt him myself. He is not a phantom. He was a real Man, and he was God himself on that cross for us. What an incredible thing. But this is the fight John was in. So we also read um, that if Jesus is not a real man with real flesh, the entire gospel, again, ladies, it goes out the window. If he was not God, the entire gospel goes out the window. This is how important this is. This is why the heresy was so dangerous. And this is the reason for John's urgency in these last three of his writings. So um, 
We also know, I don't think I have a slide for this. Let me see. No. Now, John was not the first to be dealing with this. Of course, we know in much earlier teachings and in much earlier books, um, false gospel, false teaching, all of this was being dealt with. In Galatians, and if you look on your timeline here, and if you remember, all I did in this particular timeline was take out the time of the writings of each of the New Testament books. Because it sort of helps you. This is on page one of your notes, I believe, or from the first lesson. I don't think I put it in this lesson. But here, John is writing at the very end of the first century. All of his writings come toward the end. There is debate what actually comes first or what came second. But we know they're toward the end of the first century. Galatians, look where Galatians is written. Almost 50 years before, 50 years before John is talking about Gnosticism and false teachers and warning as warning of this. This is what Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And you know that that word means let them be damned. Pretty strong. Again, this is how serious this is. So Paul's talking about it here. 50 years later, John is still talking about it. Um, I didn't even put this in here, but think about Acts. Think about what Paul um, says in Acts. Now, we know Acts was written later, but Acts happened right after the ascension of Christ. In Acts, we know we have the birthday of the church. And then right after the birthday of the church, people were sent out. And, um, and we know Paul, as he went out, he was warning people that as soon as I leave, as soon as I leave, fierce wolves from among the flock are going to rise up to lead people astray. So pretty much as soon as the church began, false teaching and teachers began. People were learning the truth and people were being led astray. Is that still what is happening? Yes. People are learning the truth and people are being led astray. We can't be naive. We have to know what's going on. We have to be discerning and we have to learn what to do about this. Hence John's instructions. So, the second thing he was dealing with, the second cultural thing I should say that we need to understand, is hospitality. 
Now, we know in the earliest stages of the church, the gospel was spread, again, by these individuals going out. At first, it was the apostles themselves going out to teach. And we know in the book of Acts, if you remember, Acts is really divided into three sections. We have the gospel being spread in Jerusalem. And then the second part, the gospel being spread in Samaria and Judea. Judea. And then the third part of Acts, the gospel going out into the rest of the world. But, but think about that. The gospel had to what? Go out. People had to go out. Jesus' life and ministry on the earth was actually in a very small geographic area. The way it got spread was by other people taking it out. And if you think about this time, there weren't hotels. There weren't Airbnbs. People depended on the hospitality of others when they went out to be cared for. So, in this need for hospitality, and then we also have a time the church had just began. No such thing as a church building. Where did church take place? In homes. They were home churches. So, when someone would travel and be welcomed into a home, they were given a platform to share the gospel. And this is how the gospel spread. And if they were taken in and they taught and then were sent out with a blessing, it helped them to get entrance into the next place, into the next home. It it would be like Vanessa showing up at your house claiming to be a teacher, an evangelist, and you, you know, you may or may, may not know. And she said, oh, I just left Shaney's. I'm just coming from Shaney's with her blessing. And then, because you know Shaney, what does that do for Vanessa? Credibility. So they can be brought in more easily. So this is the system that was happening here. And... Um, Let's look at this word hospitality because I feel like as I was preparing for this, and we probably all know, um, 1 John seems to be taught and um, talked about. You never really hear much about 2 John and 3 John. They're just kind of neglected books. And it might be because hospitality seems to be a topic that doesn't really get talked about, doesn't really get taught on. Hospitality is a big deal, a very big deal. Let's look at just a few verses, and I think we can see that. Um, Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We should be seeking it, not just doing it when we have to. We should be looking for ways to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another, uh-oh, without grumbling. Do it happily. Do it with joy. It's an opportunity. It's a privilege. 
1 Timothy 3.2. Therefore, and here we see the kind of um, qualifications a person needs in order to be a leader in the church. 1 Peter 3.2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Titus 1, 8, almost word for word. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Wow. So the leaders in the church were supposed to be setting the example for everyone else, but everyone else was supposed to be seeking opportunities to do it and doing it happily. I think we got to get this back. This wasn't just for then. This wasn't just for then. This is for now. But anyway, this, this is all clear how this was supposed to go. People going out, being accepted into people's homes, but unfortunately, at the very same time, workers of the faith were going out, false teachers were going out, taking advantage of this very system. And then when they were accepted into a home or a church, it means they were also given a platform to teach lies, to teach falsehood. If they were accepted and then sent out, same thing happened. They could gain acceptance into another place. So that is how the lies were spreading, just like the truth was spreading. And John, in these last two letters, he's going to hit both of these things. Do not let in the wrong people. It's not open to everyone you all the church has to be careful the church has to be careful we can't let in anyone teaching anything because we're supposed to love everyone and be nice that's not loving that's not loving to let the body of christ hear false teaching and be deceived and then at the same time again Oh, people that are doing the work of Christ. Oh, we need to let them in. We need to welcome them. We need to support them. So both of these things is what we're going to be hearing. We've heard in the first two letters. We're going to be seeing a lot more of that tonight. So turn in your notes. We'll read the whole first letter tonight or the whole letter tonight. And I'm going to try to get from verse 1 to 8 covered this evening. So follow along as I read. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, 
strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like this, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not from God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I just ask as we open your word this evening, Lord, that you reveal wonderful things in your word to us. God, show us the truth. We do not want to be women who get deceived. We want to be women who know the truth, who recognize the truth, who live by the truth, who love in truth. God, and we know all truth comes from you. So, God, as we go verse by verse, Lord, just show us what we need to see. And, Father, I pray that everything tonight bring you glory. Lord, this is not about us, but to you be the glory. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. So, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So this term elder here, it's the exact same word he used when he introduced himself in the second letter. This term definitely alludes to his advanced chronological age at the time of his writing. And you can look there in the little box I have just as a reminder. Think about John and where he is at the time of writing these letters. Traditionally, it's thought that John was actually the youngest of the apostles. He might have even been like teenage years when Jesus first called him. Um, According to other sources, we know that John lived until the latter years of the 90s, possibly even into the year 100. So he's had a long life. He's the only apostle that faced a natural death. A long life and a natural death. He outlived both Peter and Paul by three decades. That's kind of wild to think about. John saw a lot. Did he have the chance to become jaded? Oh my gosh, if anybody had a chance to turn away, think of what he saw all his friends. 
all these people he walked with and he did not get jaded. He became stronger and stronger and stronger. And we're going to see that in this letter. Amazing. Um, Interesting note. I'm always fascinated by what details the Bible gives us and what details we don't have. Like, why don't we know that? Have you ever thought in the Bible, we do not have the account of any of the deaths of the first apostles or Paul other than Judas. He is the only one that the Bible tells us how he died. Everyone else we get from other historical accounts. Doesn't really have anything to do with 3 John, but I do find that fascinating. (laughs) I kind of want to know why. Um, So moving on in the letter, here he is identifying himself as the elder. Um, Though, again, we don't know the exact dates of these writings, which comes first. Um, We do know they were all toward the end of his life. And because the structure, the style, the phrasing, and even the topic of 3 John is so similar to 2 John, it is believed they were written very closely together. But even of more significance than his age and when he wrote these at advanced age is the fact that this word elder shows he had an official position in the church. Um, He, so much so, ladies, he doesn't even have to put his name in it. If he wrote something and sent it off, let me tell you, that piece of writing came with authority. The authority of the last living apostle. The last one, remember, that had seen with his own eyes, heard with his own ears, and touched with his own hands, Jesus himself. He was a first-person witness to the ministry of the miracles of And this gave him incredible authority. So from the elder to the beloved Gaius. um, This is the most personal of all of John's letters. And it's written to the narrowest of audiences. Remember in 1 John, it was really written to the entire church. Again, we, we learned it wasn't really in letter form. It was more sermon form. And it was kind of going back through the same ideas. He'd throw out something and um, flesh it out and then come back to it. And it's actually a brilliant piece of writing. But he hits a lot of things um, about the church to the church. The second letter he writes to the elect lady and her children. So, again... As Elizabeth said, there were several different ideas of who this elect lady could be. Um, I I tend to feel it was an actual woman who probably had a home church, and he was commending her. Um, But, again, this was to a family within the church, and no one is named. And then in 3 John, written to one person, and that person is named. And we have their name, Gaius. So it's even been asked, why such a personal letter? How did this short little personal letter even make it into Scripture? And I think as we continue, it's going to become more apparent. And I think we're going to be reminded, as we often are, 
incredible things sometimes come in small packages. And that's what we'll find in this letter. So Gaius is the, actually the first of three individuals mentioned by name. We're going to have three different men in this letter. We have Gaius. He is the one to whom the letter is written. We're going to meet Diotrephes. He's the one to whom the letter is about. And then Demetrius, interesting, looks like he's the one tasked with delivering this letter. And there's something important we're going to learn from that as well. So three men by name in this letter. Now with Gaius, we can't be sure exactly who this person is historically. Gaius was a very common name at this time in history. It would be like somebody being named Michael today. You can't say Michael and know exactly who it is. Now, there are mentions of other men with this name in Scripture in Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Read through those this week. You're going to see all of them are spoken of very positively. So, could it be one of these Gaiuses? Possibly. And it might not be. Might just be another one. Nobody knows for sure. But there is an interesting connection, particularly in the Romans verse where I'm like, hmm. Could that be the same? So read those, see what you think. So we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that this is an individual who John holds in high regard. It's an individual John loves, for he describes him as beloved. And this is the first of four times John uses this term in the letter, beloved, And then he follows it with, whom I love in truth. Beloved, whom I love in truth. I think Gaius is loved by John. So this is a man John knows personally, possibly someone that John may be um, led to in conversion or someone he discipled. Because later we're going to see that John actually describes him as one of his children. So this is a man that he loves, and the foundation of that love, and this is so important, Gaius is whom I love in truth. This isn't some just fleeting emotion. It's not just this um, shallow sentimentality. They love because they both love the truth. This is the foundation of their love. Have you ever noticed that? It it can be easy to love someone if you have the same beliefs holding you together. It can be a little harder when you don't. Oh, these men, they had the same, and they loved each other. John loved him dearly. So John's emphasis seems to always be on truth. Um, And as we know, he is a leader of the church. His emphasis should be on the truth. That's what the church is all about. We are the ones. The church is the ones who knows the truth. And again, we've seen this several times before, but I think it's just such a great visual representation of John's Emphasis. Look, look at this. In the gospel, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each use the word truth one time. 
John 23. In all these other epistles, this is how many times the word truth is used. Some of the epistles aren't even on here because it's not used. And then we have John eight times, five times, seven times. And second John and third John are only a handful of verses. Oh, the truth is important to John. And he hammers away at it, hammers away at it, hammers away at it. Um, all throughout his writing, we'll see phrases um, about the truth. Because again, he is a pastor of a church. He's a leader in the church. And we know that the church itself is founded on truth. It is the proclaimer of truth. Should be loving others in truth. Should be walking in truth. Testifying to truth. Living by truth. Should be fellow workers for truth. And should be contending for the truth against falsehood. If the church loses its testimony of truth, it has nothing to offer. Think about that. If the church loses its testimony of truth, it has nothing to offer. It is no different from any other organization on the earth. It might as well be a country club. It's the truth that sets the church apart that makes it different. And John is always trying to get that in. So taking us back to the question of why is this letter in Scripture, it's because it's going to show us a very personal and practical way that a believer can walk out truth as a member of the body of Christ. We're also going to see, again, that it's the flip side of how he told the elect lady to walk out truth as a member of the body of Christ. We're going to see two sides of this. So there's a reminder there about the second letter. I'm going to let you read that on your own. But again, it's just the don't let everybody in. Don't let everybody in. You can't. It's dangerous. And he was telling her this at a time where hospitality is absolutely paramount to society even functioning and he's saying you have to have boundaries there's parameters around hospitality in this letter again we see the different perspective instead of a warning about showing hospitality to false teachers it warns of not showing hospitality to true ministers of the gospel. In the second letter, we learned false teachers were going around taking advantage of Christian hospitality, worming their way into congregations. Remember, Jude even used that word. Remember, worming their way. Almost gives you the chills. Um, in this letter, we see at the same time, true ministers were being denied hospitality and therefore being denied a platform to speak the truth. So verse 2, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Second time he uses the word beloved, um, this strong form of affection. In Greek, it's agapetos, 
which means esteemed, dear, favorite, or dearly loved. Some translations like the NIV, they render this as dear friend, but I just don't think that's strong enough. I don't think that's the best translation. Beloved is much stronger. Um, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Now, this was actually a very common greeting in letter writing during this time in the Roman Empire. It would be very similar to us writing a letter and saying, oh, I hope this letter finds you well. So it's just a nice greeting, a nice thing to say, used very commonly. But I really do not doubt that for John, this wasn't just this little happy greeting, like writing the text, praying for you, prayer hand emojis. This, for John, I believe if he said it, I believe he's doing it. I believe he's the the pastor who loves. And I believe when he says, I'm praying for you, I believe he was praying for them. He was praying for Gaius. He had been praying for him. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in truth. So he says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers. Now this word can actually be brothers and sisters. In New Testament usage, depending on the context here, the plural Greek, which is aldephoi, can be translated brothers by itself or collectively as brothers and sisters. Now, the important thing here, you all, is not the gender of who is being talked about. The important thing is their brothers, meaning fellow believers. That's what we need to be getting here. Because brothers are coming to John testifying about Gaius. And whose testimony should hold the most weight with John? Fellow believers. Fellow believers. And this is what was happening. So these brothers came and testified to your truth. I don't know that this particular phrase 10 years ago would have really have been needed to really dig into, but where we are today, we're going to take a few minutes and look into this because I can promise you John is not talking about or alluding to any type of personal truth. Like Gaius, this is your truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. Oh my gosh, we hear that all the time. That is a lie. That is an absolute lie. A better translation here would be the truth that is in you. They came and testified about the truth that is in you. Now, for something to be true, of course, it means it needs to be in accordance with reality. This whole idea of everyone having their own truth 
is a lie, and, and it just can't even stand up to common sense if you really look at it. Because, of course, we know a fact. We learned this very early in school. I can almost remember getting worksheets about this. A fact means something that is true for all. An opinion means something that can vary person to person. If you're my age or older, you probably remember studying this in school. You'd get little worksheets, and it would say something like, it's 85 degrees today, and you would put fact or opinion. Well, it's a fact. You can prove it. You can test it. And then it would be, it's hot today. Well, that's an opinion, of course. To someone in Alaska, that'd be a pretty hot day. For someone in Haiti, they'd be getting blankets out. So a fact, the very definition is it is true for all, pertains to all, can't, can't change. The problem today is people are being told and even encouraged that their opinions are as important and as valuable as facts. And that is simply untrue, simply untrue. Um, People might have very strong opinions about the truth. People can deny the truth, ignore the truth, express their opinions like they are the truth. But truth is truth. And there is one source for all absolute truth. And there is an absolute truth. And it is God and his word. And that is it. So again, don't don't let this confuse you. We know more than anyone that John is probably the most dogmatic of the writers in this idea of there being absolute truth. So he's simply saying, oh, they're coming to me and telling me about the truth that is in you. Um, he's hearing these testimonies from believers based on how Gaius lived and treated others. And this report that was coming back to him was very good. And then he continues and says, as indeed you are walking in truth. So what does this tell us? Well, first off, that Gaius was a man who knew the truth. Beyond that, he actually walks out the truth that he knows. Truth is not just a doctrine to Gaius. He lives it. And even beyond that, Gaius's character was recognized, known, and spoken of by others as they witnessed the way he walked. Don't, don't miss that again, the importance of that. His character was recognized, known, spoken of by others when they noticed how he walked. Now, for an application to think about through this week, if you choose to, this idea of a walk is a consistent metaphor all throughout the word pertaining to our relationship with God. When a fellow believer asks you, how's your walk? What's your walk like? 
we, we know what they're really asking. They're not asking us, how many steps did you take today? <laughs> Even though most people could probably tell you. Um, they're saying, how's your relationship with the Lord? H- how are you doing? What are you doing to grow? What are you learning? Are, are, is the word changing you? Do you know the truth? Are you living out the truth that you know and profess? And as you think through this, um, also think about, are you? How is your walk? Are you walking out the truth you know? Is it possible to know truth and not walk in it? (sighs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you think about this week, if there's any areas in your life that that might pertain to, there's things you do about it. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. Um, Some other connections for you here, thinking about this walk. Can't go into it, but just read Hebrews 11 again, that um, the heroes of the faith, if you were in the Jude class, you remember this. Enoch made it on that list for something very interesting to me, something so simple. Read it. It should encourage you. And then read Amos 3.3, where you will learn the key to walking with God. So again, people are coming to John with high praise for Gaius. And then look at John's response when he hears these reports. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Now, first off, this should sound very familiar to you because John used a very similar term in the second letter. Um, He told the elect lady um, that... He saw, let me find it, Um, he was hearing a good testimony that some um, of her children were walking in truth. But here we have a change here, becomes very, very personal. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. That word my in this statement is the emphatic position in Greek, and it means my own children. Um, So he is hearing a good report from other people about one of his own. Has that ever happened to you as a mom? Oh, you can get what he's saying here. There's not much better. Not much better. And then to hear something about something so important, not just something not real important in the big scheme of things. Oh, they're a great basketball player. Well, well, good. No, they're, oh my gosh, what a man, what a woman of character. I heard they did this. I witnessed this. Oh, that is incredible. And this honestly is one of my favorite verses in all three of these letters um, because it gives us such insight into John. What gives him his greatest joy? He doesn't say it just brings me joy. This is his greatest joy. It doesn't come from his own freedom or personal comfort. And remember, probably not too long before this letter, he was living on Patmos in exile, doing hard labor because people were hoping he would die. 
and then he gets released back to Ephesus, and he's not talking about that. Oh, my greatest joy to be back home. Be back home in my own bed, la, 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 la. Um, His greatest joy doesn't come from his own notoriety, his standing or influence in the early church. Again, here he is, last living apostle. Um, He was well known among the entire church on the earth at that day, probably. Probably anyone who was a believer would have heard of this man, John. But his greatest joy did not come from that. His greatest joy comes from knowing his children are walking in truth. The people who he's pastoring, who he's teaching, who he's discipling, those are his children. And when he sees them walking out the truth that they are learning, that is what brings him his greatest joy. What a heart of a pastor you see there. That is beautiful. Absolutely incredible. So another application here to think about what gives you your greatest joy and as you answer this on your own be careful to give the answer that is really true not the one you think you should give or the one you wish you could say honestly give the real answer because an honest answer to this question can reveal a lot about yourself to you So think through this. What gives you your greatest joy? And if your answer isn't what you wished it would be, I would say I bet John would not have even been able to answer that earlier in his life. I don't think he could have honestly given that answer. Remember, early on, what did Jesus call him? A son of thunder. He was like, bring down the judgment, Lord. Come on, they don't believe. Get them. That's what he was called. And now, many years later, probably through age and experience, it's changed him. It's tempered him. So he goes from Jesus calling him a son of thunder to him calling himself the one whom Jesus loves. And I don't think he's saying that in any arrogant or braggadocious way. Oh, I'm the one he loves. He loves me more than he loves you. I think he's saying it out of sheer astonishment. I'm the one he loves. Jesus loves me. Oh, my gosh. And ladies, we can all say that. We should say that. It'll make you feel good. We're we're the ones Jesus loves. He loves us. Um, And because he realizes that he is so loved by Jesus, ladies, I think that's why he so easily loves others, and he does. We see it all throughout. And then John continues, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support them, support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Oh, there is so much in here. (laughs) 
beloved use for the first time. It's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts. Um, John is commending him in his actions, deeming them faithful. In the Greek, that means trustworthy. It's like John is saying, you are conducting yourself and your duties in a trustworthy manner. And not just in some things, in all things. That, that's pretty amazing. Oh, may we all live to try to hear this commendation at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's getting to hear this beautiful commendation while he's here. For these brothers, strangers as they are. Um, so who is Gaius treating in this trustworthy way? Brothers who are strangers. The fascinating thing about this is strangers can become instant brothers if they have the Lord in common. Strangers can become instant sisters if they have the Lord in common. Um, And we saw that, again, taking us back to 1 John. These are all connected. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but remember what John says at the end of um, chapter 1, 1 through 4, when he's talking about how he was that first person, you know, he saw, felt, touched Jesus, heard Jesus. He said, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Again, can't expound on it much. Go back to the tape. Shaney did a wonderful job with this. Um, When we are saved, we become in instant fellowship with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit who indwells in us, and with all other believers. That's what fellowship is. That's incredible. When we are saved, we absolutely are saved from the wrath of God. Um, And if that were all, ladies, it it would be enough. (laughs) It would truly be enough. But it's not just for that. We're not just saved from things. We're saved for things. And we're saved for fellowship in this world, in this life, and forevermore, all eternity, fellowship with the Godhead and other believers. And that's why this statement can be true, that a brother can, or a stranger can be a brother, a stranger can be a sister, because there's instant fellowship in salvation. And that application, very quickly, think about it, but has that ever happened to you? You meet a stranger, you're talking, something comes out and you realize, oh, ding, ding, they're a believer. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you've just known each other for years? That's what that is. That's evidence of that fellowship that we get with salvation. So these people, these strangers, testified to your love before the church. So these visiting evangelists or teachers, they stayed with Gaius. 
which obviously would have entailed lodging them, feeding them, supporting them. This would have been costly, both in terms of finances, in time, um, in support. And these strangers are reporting back about the treatment they received, and they are also declaring publicly before the church what Gaius did. I wish I would have put an application there, you all. So often, I feel like it's so easy to talk about um, what somebody's not doing or not doing well instead of publicly talking when we see a sister doing something well that brings God glory. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it with each other. Oh, that builds the church. Um, And I don't think we see enough of that. And these are strangers in front of the whole church getting up and talking about this man and what he did and how um, they were treated by him. That's incredible. So right after this, John's purpose changes a little bit. He goes from commending Gaius for what he's already done to offering him some counsel on what to do next. So they've testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now the NIV renders this term, you will do well, simply to the word please. So it's like John saying, please send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So here, John is expressing Gaius's responsibility doesn't end as soon as the guests leave. He's saying, send them off. Give them provision. Help them in their work. Help get them to the next place. Provide for them. So here, we've already seen his heart as a pastor here, I think you see his heart as a teacher. I think this is so cool. He's saying, oh, Gaius, you've done this well. Now try this. You're already doing this. I think you can take the next step and do more. That's what a teacher does. And that's what he's doing to Gaius. Okay, you got this one down. Now I want you to send him off in a manner worthy of the Lord. Wow, that's a... It's, um, how would that be? What does that mean? Send them off in the manner worthy of the Lord? It'd be, how, how would God send them off? How would the Lord send them off? That, that's a pretty high standard right there. <laughs> I think God would be generous. <laughs> I think the Lord would send them off with even more than what they need. And this is what he's telling Um, Gaius to do. Y'all, this is just a reminder to all of us. We are to be a generous people. Generous with our homes. Generous with our time. Generous with our finances. And generous with our words. So send them off. Gaius, give them what they need in a manner worthy of the Lord. And why is he saying to do this in the next verse? Verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. 
They're not going out for themselves like the false teachers. Oh, follow me. I'm going to get what I can get. I'm going to get all the free stuff I can get being in these homes. I'm going to lie to people and get their money, whatever. They are not in this for themselves. They go out for the sake of the name. I've got a quote here from John MacArthur because the way he explains this verse, I cried the first time I read it. I read it to Todd and started crying. I just, there's no way I could say this better, add to it anything. I just think this is incredible. So they've gone out for the sake of the name. And this is what MacArthur says. They went out for the sake of the name. What is that? The name, which is above every name, the name Lord. They went out for the sake of the name. That is a great truth. In Romans 1.5, it says, Paul received grace and apostleship to preach the gospel, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Why do we evangelize not just for the sake of the sinner, but for the sake of the name, for the glory of God, for the honor of God? We evangelize because it is an affront to God not to believe in a son. We evangelize because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We evangelize because he's worthy to be loved and worthy to be praised and worthy to be honored and worthy to be confessed as Lord. We go for the sake of the name. They went out for the sake of the name. They went out to do the work of God. They went out to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater enterprise. There is no higher calling. Oh, let that sink in. That'll change your idea of evangelism. It's not just for the person we're talking to. It's for him. We do it because it gives him glory when we're talking about him. Whether that person accepts or not, it brings God's glory that we are exalting his name and telling others the truth about him. And John is saying, support these people because that's why they're going out. This is why they go out. And they're accepting nothing from the Gentiles. The world, which would be the Gentiles, isn't going to support people like this. The world supports itself. We see that all the time. Um, Look, next time you see how much a Hollywood blockbuster pulls in. Oh, the world supports itself. Or if you see the price of a Super Bowl ticket. The world supports itself. The world might even support false teachers who are going to tell the world what their itching ears want to hear. But the world is never going to support a true bearer of the gospel of Christ because it is contrary to the world system. So if the world's not going to support him, who supports him? Us. We do. We do. We have to. It's a call. So think through this 
as a next application. It is crucial, ladies, and we talked about this last week at the end of the second letter, that we recognize and be able to discern whether individuals or ministries are about the name or about themselves. We can't just be supporting everything, throwing our money at anything just because they're called a Christian or because they say they're a proclaimer of the truth. You should be able to recognize there are telltale signs of someone is a teacher of the gospel or a teacher of false doctrine. And if you can't recognize it, ladies, it means you need to be in the word more. And that's okay. That's not to put guilt on you. Just be in the word more. That's how you recognize truth. That's how you recognize error by knowing the word of God. And we can't just say, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give to them and God will deal with that whether they do the right thing or not. No, it, it, this is the warning. That's what he told the elect lady not to do. You don't support anybody, support everybody, know what they're doing. Are they working for the name of the Lord? That's who you support. Therefore, we ought to support people like this, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So again, the warning in the second letter about showing hospitality to the wrong people. Here he explains the benefits and blessings when we show hospitality and support to the right people. Listen to what Jesus himself says um, in Matthew as a reward for hospitality. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. What a system God has set up here. This is kind of crazy if you really think about it. Now, obviously, we all have ministries. Everybody has a ministry where God has put them to do something. Sometimes it might be an official capacity. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's different depending on the season. I know for women, sometimes our ministry is strictly our homes and our children and no greater ministry (laughs) at certain times in our life. But we're all to be working where we are. But obviously, we can't all do everything. We can't all go everywhere. So look what God does. It's almost like he's sitting back thinking, okay, how can I bless him even more? What else can I do for him? He's saying, you don't always have to go. You don't always have to do the same thing as that person. You find someone doing the work of God, you support them, and you get to share in what they're doing. You become a fellow worker with them? And you didn't even go? Is that amazing? (laughs) What an opportunity. This letter is ripe 
with opportunities for blessing. <laughs> Showing hospitality, supporting people doing the work of Christ. That is the call in this letter. Um, are we 8 or 8.30? Eight okay. Um, so, I know it's only five minutes. Um, so, I know it's really just discussion here. I really wanted to give you all a few minutes. So, if you have time, you can stay and discuss and pray for each other. I really just kind of put the applications into discussion questions that you all can talk about or um, even just talk about any aha moments that you had during the letter, anything that you saw for the first time um, that really hit you. Let me, let's do it this way this week since we're running late. I'm going to pray us out. And then if you have kids or if you have to go, love you and we'll see you in two weeks. If you can stay and meet and pray. You can stay as long as you want. I'm here as long as anybody wants to be in the room. So, Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this specific letter. God, we thank you for someone like John who lived a faithful, admirable life that we can look to and desire to live like. God, we thank you for his long life that you gave him to do your work. God, we thank you for the privilege and honor. We'll get to meet him one day. What an incredible thing. God, as we heard the truths in this letter about hospitality, God, about our own walks and how people can look at our walk and learn about us, God, help us to be women who walk in truth, who learn truth, continue to grow in truth, and walk out the truth that we know because we know others watch. Help us to set a good example just as John does, just as Gaius does. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray over these next few weeks that you just bring to all of us Um, to our remembrance things that you're teaching us from all three of these letters. And Lord, we look forward to the time when we are back together again to finish out this precious letter. We thank you and praise you for this. In the name of Jesus, amen.